Welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. Bethlehem basically adjoins Jerusalem on the south, and I had driven between the two many, many times in the 1990s, which was why I was startled to find that the old checkpoint was gone and traffic had been rerouted. Two Palestinians in street dress directed me aggressively into an informal parking lot close to the notorious separation barrier that keeps West Bank Palestinians out of Israel. The men insisted that I could not bring my rental car into Bethlehem, and they demanded an unreasonable parking fee, which proved to be negotiable. I walked through a gap in the barrier. No heritage here, no irrigated landscaping. Just a concrete wall with a square gap big enough for two vehicles to pass simultaneously, one each way. Israeli security forces were methodically checking vehicles coming into Jerusalem, but nobody was checking traffic going the other way. I walked through the gap, got a taxi, and went a few miles to Solomon's Pools on the far side of Bethlehem. Despite their name, the pools are actually Herodian, with Roman and later modifications. Bigger than Olympic swimming pools, They were built to provide domestic water for Jerusalem, and bits of the aqueducts built by the Romans to convey water northward survive, not as monumental constructions, but as tiny channels running like rivulets along the contours of the gnarly limestone. Although the pools are one of the most scenic spots around Bethlehem, since I had last been here, the Palestinian Authority had enclosed them with chain-link fences, as if the people of Bethlehem needed more barriers. The pools sit in a valley, and I continued a mile or so east and downstream to an irrigated patch of ground, visually spoiled by plastic greenhouses. The crusaders thought that this was the Hortus Conclusus, the enclosed garden of the Song of Songs. Their error explains the name of the village here today, corrupted from Hortus to Artas or Urtas. At the suggestion of an archbishop in Montevideo, a nunnery was built here. It opened in 1904 and still looks as it always has, except for the addition of the greenhouses, which belong to the nunnery. Nineteenth-century Europeans living in Jerusalem began summering in Urtas to get some relief from Jerusalem's heat. And in the 1920s, a Finnish anthropologist named Hilma Granqvist lived in the village while studying the lives of village women. Her house is now a museum, and a fine example of the domed houses built across the West Bank from Roman times until the 1950s. They're windowless, charming perhaps with their domes and supporting pendentives, but they're dark and unplumbed. Houses built in the last 50 years or more are almost always made of concrete blocks, stacked and mortared between concrete posts and beams. Houses are usually two or three stories tall and left incomplete, with rebar protruding at the top so that another floor can be added someday. The new style, introduced with a one-story model by a British planner in the 1940s, 
is ugly but does have the advantage of windows and running water. The planner, Henry Kendall, went on to a posting as city planner in Uganda. The British Empire played a lot of tricks like that on its servants, and vanishingly few Palestinians in the West Bank today know that, in a sense, Henry Kendall built their house. Heading back to the center of Bethlehem, I went briefly to the Church of the Nativity, which was as insanely overcrowded as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre had been the day before. Both churches had originally been built by order of Constantine. But while the Church of the Holy Sepulchre lasted until the 11th century, the Bethlehem Church was destroyed in the 6th. Justinian rebuilt it. Since I had last been here, part of his floor had been removed to reveal a couple of feet below it part of the mosaic floor built for Constantine. Other mosaics added in the 12th century have recently been uncovered high in the nave, but what I liked most about the church was the exposed nave trusses, which arrived in 1480 as a gift of the English king Edward IV. I have no idea how they got to Bethlehem, which is about 50 miles from the sea. I suppose that Roman roads helped. Much as I love old timber work, the shocker for me hands down remained the separation barrier. You have to walk along the thing to begin imagining life behind it. The Warsaw Ghetto comes to mind, of course. So do the urban freeways built in the United States in the 1960s to keep blacks out of downtown. These are useful comparisons for anyone struggling from a distance to understand how Palestinians feel about their situation. The character of the wall varies along the border between Israel and the West Bank, but in Bethlehem, it is a solid concrete wall about 20 feet high, topped with wire fencing and periodic guard towers. It was built in 2003, but there's no use looking for it on Google Maps or Google Earth, where coverage of Israel is deliberately blurred. I walked along the Bethlehem side and was both shocked by the wall and impressed by the graffiti. Believe in peace. Fuck Trump. Freedom should not be a privilege. Some were wryly humorous. Make hummus, not walls. Another wall bites the dust. One, under the Nike swoosh, said, just remove it. Still others had elaborate artwork. A good likeness of Alice, peering through a small rounded top doorway, had the caption, Palestinians in Wonderland. Another without caption showed Donald Trump patting the wall fondly. Intentionally or not, this Trump had an uncanny resemblance to Ariel Sharon. Across the narrow street hugging the wall, I passed the Waldorf Hotel. There was a shop called, you guessed it, Walmart, with a sign advertising spray paint, stencils, and ladders for hire. If the Israeli guard towers were manned, I couldn't tell. The guards paid no attention to either the graffiti artists or the foreigners taking photos. I passed another visitor looking at the wall. I said something like, unbelievable, eh? She said something like, absolutely. We were both struck almost dumb. I tried walking back to my car 
through the same gap I had walked through before, but I was going the wrong way now. And an Israeli guard waved me away and pointed toward a pedestrian channel, walled and roofed with chain-link fencing. A full-height turnstile locked behind me. Another was locked in front of me. An officer behind ballistic glass asked a few questions and checked my passport. A moment earlier, two Palestinians with passes to enter Israel had cleared the compartment. About a 100,000 West Bank Palestinians, or about one in six people in the West Bank labor force, have those passes. Officially free, in reality, they are extremely expensive, almost $800 per month in 2022, or about a third of the average salary of a Palestinian working in Israel. Subtract additionally the cost of travel, and the permittees' take-home pay isn't much higher than it is for workers who stay in the West Bank. The daily crossing is humiliating, too, one more in the cascade of humiliations that are part of daily life on the West Bank. In the 1990s, one young man in the nearby village of Batir told me that his father was a chauffeur at the American consulate in Jerusalem, but that he himself, the son, could not enter the city. With a mixture of pride and bitterness, he showed me a framed photo of his father with a beaming Jimmy Carter. I also met a young woman in the village. She looked from her window over to a new Israeli road, bladed into a hillside 500 yards to the east. I asked her what she thought of the road, and she snapped, I hate it. Serves me right for asking such a stupid question. I decided to go over to Batir. About five miles west of Bethlehem, the village lies in a small, narrow valley, with the view gently downslope a couple of hundred yards to a much larger and even more gently sloping valley, which happens to be followed by the old railroad from Jaffa to Jerusalem. For decades, pilgrims and tourists on their way to Jerusalem looked out the window on the right side of their rail car and got what became a classic glimpse, perhaps the classic glimpse, of a Palestinian village. The view was particularly attractive because the slope from the track up to the village had been converted over the centuries into a set of terraces irrigated by a spring at the center of the village. Batir in those days had its own train station, and village women raised crops of mint on the terraces. In summer, they took bundles of mint by train to Jerusalem, sat down at the Damascus Gate, and waited for customers who needed mint for tea. The mint business was destroyed in 1948, when the railroad's valley, the Israelis call it the Nahal Rafaim, and the Palestinians call it the Wadi Asika, became part of the Green Line, the border between Israel and Jordan. No longer able to take the train to Jerusalem, villagers had to undertake an arduous climb south from the village up to the spine of the West Bank. From there, Bethlehem was about five miles to the east. The Damascus Gate, which fell on the Jordanian side of Jerusalem, was another five miles to the north. Enter Batir's paterfamilias, Hassan Mustafa. Educated at the American University in Cairo, Hassan Mustafa had lived in Iraq before returning to teach in Jerusalem. After 1948, he would work with the Red Cross and with the UN's Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, the primary source of United Nations assistance for Palestinians. 
These organizations, aided by Hassan Mustafa and the villagers, would build a clinic, a girls' school, and a craft center at Batir. Hassan Mustafa did one more thing in 1950, supervising the construction of an access road. Seventy years later, that road may still be the straightest road anywhere in the highlands of the West Bank. More than a mile long, with barely a hint of a curve, it rises about 700 vertical feet. That's twice the maximum grade allowed on the U.S. interstate system. At the top, the road joins the older road network leading to Bethlehem and other places. I remembered how to get to Batir from Bethlehem, but because I had been told I couldn't drive into Bethlehem, I backtracked into Jerusalem. I found my way to Route 60, a superb highway built by the Israelis to help Jewish settlers on the West Bank get to and from Jerusalem quickly. After a few miles, I exited near the top of Hassan Mustafa's road and stopped at a large red and white trilingual sign. The English version read, "This road leads to Area A under the Palestinian Authority." The entrance for Israeli citizens is forbidden, dangerous to your lives, and is against the Israeli law. Should I disregard the sign and its surprisingly broken English? Figure it didn't apply to me. Figure that the odds of a rental car getting trashed were small. When I say that my excursion to Batir proved peaceful, I will be told you were lucky. There's never. A shortage of history in this part of the world, and Batir has a lot of it, going back at least to the Third Jewish-Roman War, known also as the Bar Kochba Revolt, which came to its conclusion at Batir in 135 A.D. The uprising had begun about three years earlier, as the Romans were rebuilding Jerusalem. According to the ancient Roman historian Cassius Dio. Five hundred and eighty thousand Jews were killed during the war. The Talmud speaks of the quote eighty thousand officers bearing battle trumpets in their hands, who entered the city of Betar when the enemy took it and killed men, women, and children until their blood ran into the Great Sea. For seven years, the Gentiles harvested their vineyards that had been soaked with the blood of Israel, without requiring any additional fertilizer. Unquote. I drove down Hassan Mustafa's road and stopped at the site of what is now known to Palestinians as the Kerbet Al Yehud, the ruin of the Jews. A sign read simply, "Batir Park and Restaurant," but I found neither a park nor a restaurant. I did find unfenced olive terraces on a steep slope down to the railroad, along with a distant view of Jerusalem. As for ancient Batir. Dry-stacked stone walls on the site might speak eloquently to archaeologists, but I could not tell whether they dated back two centuries or twenty. Unlike the much-visited ruins of Masada, which is in Israel, this ruin of the Jews was deserted. There were no educational signs, no fences, no guards, no excavations in progress. When I first visited Batir in the late 1980s, I was with an American engineer working for an aid organization. He was nervous, insisting I not get out of the vehicle. He took me to Batir's ancient spring and showed me how his organization 
had diverted the water from an ancient stone-lined channel to a steel pipe. I thought that the people of Batir could make much more money from tourists attracted to a biblical landscape than they ever could by reducing seepage in their irrigation system. But I didn't argue the point. On the subject of seepage, I know that irrigation engineers bend as little as their pipes. Twenty years later, the pipe was still in place, ending at an old masonry chute from which water still leapt in an arc into a pool. The pool has historically been plugged at night, then opened during the day, with each landowner entitled to the entire flow for a certain number of hours each week. Most of Batir's terraces have now been abandoned, however, and instead of growing mint, villagers commute to work by minibuses ferrying them up Hassan Mustafa's road. The terrace walls were intact, but the terrace beds were mostly in grass, with a few cabbages and some tough old orange lemon and olive trees. A couple of Israeli security vehicles were parked on the other side of the railroad track. There used to be Palestinian villages over there, but after 1948, the Israelis extirpated them and covered the sites with pine forests. Like the meadow at Great Zimbabwe, the forests are attractive so long as you don't know their history. The popular JFK Peace Forest is only about a mile from Batir, for example. Talk about history written by the victors. On the walk back up to the spring, I was surprised to see a French couple. I shouldn't have been, because Europeans in general are braver travelers than Americans. Next to the pool, a restaurant with tables on a patio was closed. Perhaps in summer, it had customers willing to ignore the dangerous-to-your-lives sign. Near the restaurant and the ever-gushing spring, I was surprised to see a sturdy new sign with UNESCO's World Heritage logo, two hands cupped together. The sign said, Palestine, land of olives and vines, cultural landscape of southern Jerusalem, Batir. I had forgotten that UNESCO, in 2011, admitted Palestine as a member state. When that happened, the United States stopped funding UNESCO. Arrears began accruing at the rate of about $80 million annually, or a fourth or fifth of UNESCO's budget. The Palestinian Authority was now free, however, to nominate places for the World Heritage List. It nominated Batir. And in 2014, experts were called in for an evaluation. This is standard practice. For natural sites, the evaluations are made by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. In the case of cultural sites like Batir, the experts come from ICOMOS, the International Council on Monuments and Sites. Very unusually, and without explanation in their report, the ICOMOS experts did not visit Batir. They noted, however, that most of Batir's houses were recent and flat-roofed. They also noted that most of Batir's terraces had been abandoned. Their most damning observation was this, quote, The development of settlement near water sources is an almost universal phenomenon, and the choice of the site of Batir village does not appear to be outstanding. There is thus very little basis for determining why the Batir terraced landscape should be considered exceptional in the Mediterranean context or even in the Eastern Mediterranean context. Unquote. 
On the face of it, this may seem plausible. Official documents do have an aura of infallibility. But Icomos did not ask China in 1997 to choose between the old caravan towns of Pingyao and Lijiang. Instead, both were added to the World Heritage List. Why not? The demand for such places is almost insatiable. Was the listing of Liverpool enough to fill some hypothetical quota for early industrial cities? It was not. And New Lanark and Saltaire both joined the World Heritage List. Yet here, in the heart of the Holy Land, where someone looking for a landscape evocative of the Bible would have a tough time finding a better example than Batir, the experts concluded that they did not, quote, consider that the present nomination of Palestine, land of olives, cultural landscapes of southern Jerusalem, Batir, Palestine, is unquestionably of outstanding universal value, unquote. Israel by this time had joined UNESCO, and it supported the ICOMOS experts. So did UNESCO's member in arrears. Neither of them, however, had a vote. The World Heritage Committee has 21 members elected on a rotating schedule of six-year terms. The United States has not been a member for many years, and Israel has never been a member. The committee approved the nomination by a vote of 11 to 3, with seven abstentions. An Israeli representative attending the meeting as an observer called it a, quote, dark day, unquote, for UNESCO. But Israeli environmentalists joined the Palestinians in celebration, chiefly because the government of Israel now announced that it planned to build at Batir not a concrete wall, but only a 3.5-meter-high metal fence. Five years later, when I came by, there wasn't even that. Patrol vehicles sat quietly down on the other side of the railroad track. It was easy to imagine them sitting there daring somebody to just try crossing. 